This is the Blue White Breakdown, the premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. Welcome in. It's the Blue White Breakdown, and we've got an odd couple pairing here again. That's Dave Jones. And we're uh, we're talking Penn State football on the bye week, so we have a couple things we want to discuss about this. Last time Dave and I got together for a podcast, we we talked for sixty seven minutes. I think was the number covered a lot of ground. Yeah. So the 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 topics du jour. Number one, I am really curious what you think about Penn State's offense and the lack of rhythm to it, the lack of big play to it. People know what I think. What do you think? Well, I'm I'm just I'm I'm kind of dumbfounded. But then you look at it, and it's like this team scored 30 plus points in 12 straight games, like all five this season. There'd be a lot of teams in the country who would love to have a lack of rhythm, but still score 40 points a, a game. I'm really I'm really confused about the about the running game, you know. And yeah, you know who those teams were? Let's trace back. Those teams were Indiana, Maryland, Rutgers, Michigan State, West Virginia, Delaware, Illinois, Iowa, and Northwestern. The only decent defense in there is Iowa. It's immaterial. Right. How do you expose? So, so the running game is especially, and, and between the running game and the approach so far, and I, I get it that it's, you know, op- opposing defenses are kind of making Penn State approach things a certain way, and that's fine. But it's a little confusing to not even attempt the, the big play. I, I think it's this. Yursich and Franklin went through this schedule and, and thought, all right, we're going to get through the first half of the season unscathed. We've got a rookie starting quarterback. We've got a bunch of teams we should beat. The only way we can lose to them is if we hand them a game. We could lose maybe to West Virginia. We could lose maybe to Illinois. We could lose maybe to Iowa. And, and anything's possible on the Big Ten. You could even lose a road game at some place like Northwestern. We're not going to do that. We're not going to give them any ammo in order for them to beat us in a game that we absolutely shouldn't lose. So there, there are two assets in that thinking. One, you don't force Drew Allard to do anything he's uncomfortable with. You say, if, if you're not comfortable with this, just check down quick, throw it away. Do that. Two, you don't show Ohio State and Michigan anything that you're going to do against them. And the detriments are this. You're not oiling up your quarterback with his wide receivers. You're not really getting him used to deep, intermediate and deep routes, especially in the middle of the, in the, middle of the field and in between the hashes. And I think they need that. And you've got a quarterback that's certainly capable of doing it, but I'm not sure you got the wideouts right now. I think they've got trouble with developing intermediate and deep threats among that wide receiving core. And maybe they go to the tight ends and the tight end streak down the spine. I don't know. But right now, uh, <laughs> Keandre Lambert-Smith looks like a number two receiver, a good number two receiver. But I don't think they have a number one. Uh, I don't think they have a field stretcher, a guy who could take the top off a of defense. And if they did, I think they would have shown it. There's, there's also an asset to showing what you can do. So the defense has to prepare for multiple different facets of your offense. So they got through the first half of the season. UMass is going to be the sixth game, which doesn't even matter. It's a 
It's an exhibition. And I suppose you can work on stuff with them. But I would have done it against Northwestern. That is a defense that was incapable of handling them. Um, they could have played 12 quarters and Northwestern might not have scored again. That's a team you can experiment against in a road atmosphere such that it is. And you got to get rid of you got to get ready for the horseshoe here. So yeah, I got a I got a problem with it. I I don't know. Here's the other thing: their wideout room has taken hits since Taylor Stubblefield left. I think, and that was acrimonious circumstances. I I don't know if they've ever been up to Ohio State standards since Josh Gaddis left. And Josh Gaddis wanted to be a head coach. He was probably more ambitious than his capabilities, but. That's the way things are now, and I, I would, I would probably have done what what Franklin did and let him let him walk because he wasn't ready to be a coordinator. He tried being a coordinator at Michigan, that didn't work out, and Harbaugh just basically took over. So I understand Franklin's conundrum there, but the fact is, Ohio State has had the same whiteouts coach basically for five years now, and Brian Hartline, and he's now a co coordinator. And it's Franklin's job to replace that guy. Stubblefield was a very good teacher of wideouts. He taught them how to run routes. He taught them how to catch the ball. And now I think you've seen a downturn. And I'm not sure they've ever stabilized that position. They've had, what? what is it, five different wide receivers coaches in the last six years since Gaddis left? Yeah, I mean, it's it started with Corley uh, with that whole sequence where where then Franklin hired Jaylon Sider and Corley moved from running back coach to wide receivers coach. And I think a lot of people could have anticipated that that wasn't going to work out all that great. Jared Parker was here for, what, a year before he went to be the coordinator at West Virginia. And then it was Taylor Stubblefield who had like, you know, 12 jobs in 10 years and then and now to Marcus <laughs> Higgins. Just to be clear, Stubblefield was uh, the departure happened because Franklin was not happy with his recruiting. Like Prather at Maryland, he was at West Virginia. He's turned into a really good receiver for them, and they've got a whole boatload of them. They're, when, they, when they go to Maryland, I think, what is it? It's November 4th. They're going to see a whole squadron of guys there, and Caden Prather is one of them. And they got better wideouts than Penn State does. And right now, that's a big deal. It's not you can't play football the way you did 20 years ago. I don't think Taylor Stubblefield was happy with the NIL situation then. The money was not ready and he contended that because you remember that horrific fight they had between the different NIL factions which is ostensibly supposed to be outside the program even though we all know it isn't. And they were they were fighting among themselves before they solidified it, and that's the that's the atmosphere that Stubblefield had to recruit under. So Caden Prather's saying, "Show me the money," and they couldn't show him the money. Is the way I heard it. So that has been ironed out. But now, the point is, Ohio State has had continuity in their wideout room all the way through. Then Brian Hartline has not left, and he's been just stockpiling like cordwood wideouts every damn year and teaching them and to me that's been the difference the main difference between these two programs and it's not much it's been like this much even last year in the 43-31 game but they haven't been able to stop Ohio State's wideouts when they needed to they, they couldn't stop them in the 2018 game 
when they needed to. Yeah. How many times have we talked about a lack of separation for Penn State's wide receivers? I mean, this is an ongoing theme. I mean, is in your mind, is the jury still out on, on Higgins? Or are you ready to, to rule at this point? Does he not have the personnel? No, you can't do it in the middle of the season. And you wouldn't. I'm just saying, I'm not blaming Higgins. I'm just, I'm just saying there has not been any continuity in, the, in a very important room. If guys are constantly having different uh, position assistants in a room that's pretty important. I mean, Stubblefield was the only guy. What did they, they hang, hung on to him three years? Is that what it was? I think it was, yeah. It all blurs together, but yeah. It's important to have continuity with those guys. Everyone has a d- different teaching method, techniques. I mean, ostensibly, you're using the same techniques that work at the at stem of routes, how to make moves, but, but everyone's different. And we've seen an, a, a couple of different three guys who've been four-star wideouts who can't catch the ball. We've had, we've had three of them. And now the, the, lead, the latest one is Malik McLean, who couldn't catch the ball at Florida State. Now he can't catch the ball here. And the, the, under Taylor Stubblefield, guys did catch the ball. Yeah. It was, M- McLean was promising. I mean, I didn't take anything to the bank off of week one, but, man, did he look good against West Virginia. Athletically, how he moved, that that size and that touchdown he scored was really impressive. That was impressive. Yeah, and and I think it's kind of the story of the situation. Like, if you are going to lose a guy like, and you know, Trey Wallace is, is a nice young player, but if you're going to lose one guy like that and have nobody else really step into a bigger role or command a bigger role, I think that's the thing. Nobody's commanded a bigger role between Liam Clifford and Caden Saunders and Dante Cephas and Malik McLean. None of these guys have commanded anything bigger. And if you, you know, I like what Keandre Lambert Smith has done, but I don't know that he's a, a dominator. I don't think he's a number one. Right. And, and McLean is big and fast and he was the guy if he simply caught the ball. Mm-hmm. And now it looks like they've given up on him. He's not even getting targeted. So that, that is an ongoing thing. And, and, uh, you know, I think to an, a certain extent, a quarterback helps alleviate those problems. A big time, a big arm quarterback can help alleviate those problems, but doesn't fix everything. Theo Johnson down the seam is something I would love to see. Maybe that's something that, that they're holding back. You know, I, I didn't want, you know, you talking about, you know, through five games and through the UMass game, holding things back. I didn't know if I was giving too much credit to the coaching staff for, you know, being vanilla. Or or what? But that was kind of my sense too. Is that why why do anything that's above what you need to do to get the job done now? I I, I got no problem with that. I just see these wideouts, and I'm thinking mm, I don't know. You know, to be completely fair, I used to think the same thing about Jahan Dotson early in his career, and then he busted out, and I was wrong. That can still happen. Um, it can still happen with some of these it, guys. It could happen. Yeah. It could happen. So how does how does all this relate to not being able to really jumpstart much of anything in the running game? Is there not a lot of respect for the wide receivers? The approach from other teams is clearly there, but I still don't think that explains how there's no running room against Northwestern that got gashed by Minnesota. Everything that an offense does is related to whether safeties get down in the box whether outside linebackers cheat into the middle and if they can they will and if you don't scare them they will and we've seen a bunch of defenses just dare them to 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 beat them deep and I don't 
see anyone doing that. But on the other hand, I don't see a lot of burst out of Nick Singleton the way we used to. Uh, Catron Allen isn't really built that way, and now he's banged up with ribs or whatever it is. And, you know, Trey Potts looks like the, the, the freshest back right now. He's got some tread on his tires still because he hasn't really worked that, that much. Even, even at Minnesota under Mo Ibrahim, uh, he didn't get the work that – like Nick Singleton, I don't think is built for 21 carries like he got last week. He'd be much better off getting 12 or 15 with a lot of touches on, on circle routes or wheel routes and catching passes. He looks really comfortable out there. That's been encouraging. I don't think he's, don't think he's a between the tackles running back and he looks weary and beat up and i mean it's hard that's a hard job to be a meat and potatoes back i think maybe trey potts is better suited to be that guy and certainly allen when he comes back trey potts was a a very good recruit at one point you know he was he was very well thought of he ripped up a knee and then he kind of went on the back burner and they recruited over the top of him again with this kid Darius Taylor that that pet boy got up at Minnesota. Pet boy. Handwriting yeah. was on the wall, but you look out for this Darius Taylor. I mean, he now he's and and of course PJ Fleck, who I call Pep Boy, has to overwork every back he's ever had. He gives him 30 carries. And he was doing it to Taylor. I think he had 84 carries in 3 games. And he's not built for that. He's 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 kind of a he reminds you of um uh, the Rutgers back with the Chiefs, um, um, Isaiah Pacheco. Pacheco. Yeah, yeah, he's a really, really good back. I just don't know if anyone is equipped these days to carry that kind of load. This is not the days of Bill Mallory and and George Perlis anymore. Where football's uh, evolved away from it, and especially at the college level, NFL teams don't want to see you give your back thirty touches a game. Nobody wants that. That's over, and and PJ Fleck is an anachronism that way. And fortunately, he had a back in Mo Ibrahim who could take it. But my God, he took some abuse, and he didn't get drafted. I mean, who knows how much he knows? Who knows if he had been he could have been drafted if he wasn't used the way he was. He's like an old an old sedan now. I don't know if he ever had the burst to be drafted in the NFL, but he might have been. You've always been an old sedan, Dave. And your in your finest days of hooping, I think you could probably call yourself an old sedan. I don't yeah, know what you are that's now. Over, that's overdue. The <laughs> knee, the knee went out uh, right right after COVID began. I, I really miss it. I miss it. You know what I'm doing now is disc golf. How weenie fight is that? But I really like it. D- disc golf and taking the trash out. You know any disc golfers though? No. The, this is a serious community. I mean, yeah. it's almost as annoying as pickleball. I mean, <laughs> nothing is nothing's that annoying <laughs> nothing is i mean the the, right. be, the belief that they have in their sport i mean i admire it they're I'm just by it. so earnest and pious about and they they're like mary Kay uh people they want to talk about <laughs> yes they want to tell you about pickleball and everybody approaches it like they're like they're a pioneer because they're on the front end of this wave right <laughs> but i think that's over <laughs> If you want to talk about pickleball? It's like people talking about their fantasy league. No, I don't want to talk about your fantasy league. This is the Blue White Breakdown.
Let, let me ask you one more thing about the offense, and then and then we'll move on. We don't want to get too far afield here. Okay, so let's just say for a second that the way that they're managing things now, where they're they're putting together methodical drives and it's double digit plays, like the number of like twelve play fifty five yard drives. It's let's just say that that's the identity. Does that work? Michigan and Ohio State. I mean, none of what Penn State has done to this only point. if you have an overpowering offensive line. Right. They don't. Right. I think Michigan has the closest thing to it. They look like a Joe Moore offensive line at Nebraska. What they did to Nebraska is what Penn State would have liked to have done at Northwestern, but didn't. If you were going to do that to somebody, you could do it to Northwestern, right? Northwestern equals Nebraska. Well, Michigan did it at Nebraska. They just road graded them. 260 rushing yards. That's not Penn State's identity. So, no. And I'll tell you what, I mean, between Northwestern and Illinois, too, Illinois was inexplicably bad defensively, but found themselves against Penn State. Northwestern got torched by Minnesota, but they found themselves against Penn State. You know, how many other defenses are going to find themselves (laughs) against Penn State before the end of the season? Look, I think what Yurcich did against Iowa is really smart and really admirable because that is a defense that was not going to relent. They wanted only, and Phil Parker does this to everybody, and that's why my infamous Iowa pick, that's why I did it, is I thought maybe he could pull it off on a rainy night against Drew Aller, a rookie starter, and sucker him into some throws that he shouldn't make. He's done it against really good quarterbacks who are young. He did it to Talia Tungavaloa. He did it to JT Barrett. He's done it to a lot of different quarterbacks over the years and beat them, beat them bad. He gave his, he gives his Kirk Ferentz and Brian Ferentz uh, so many chances to score with that defense, but he couldn't do it against Penn State because Yursich would not take the cheese. He said, okay, you want to do that? We're going to keep going underneath. We're going to keep getting four and three and six, and we'll play it your way and we'll beat you your way. And, And it was fabulous. It, it was telling it was telling that James Franklin after the game talked about don't get bored. Don't get bored with what's working. Don't be afraid to go back to what has already worked. And that's a great I mean, that'd be a great title. If you were to write a book about that game, it'd be Don't Get Bored, the Penn State Iowa story. <laughs> Are you gonna write a book? Are you gonna write that book? Maybe, maybe it's Don't Get Bored the Penn State Iowa series. I see a I see a speaking tour. No, I'm just talking <laughs> about you as a yeah. life coach. Don't get bored. Don't get bored. Walking around the stage very quickly <laughs> with points. You want to see sweaty. If I'm walking back and forth on the stage, <laughs> that would be sweaty. Going back to the North, Northwestern game, I know you have some thoughts on this, and I'm glad I'm glad you wanted to bring it up. The the two and a half minutes left, Bo Pribula comes into the game and he takes that what what that what was called so confidently by the BTN rules analyst, a fake, a fake kneel down. I I never I didn't see it in lo- real time. I didn't see it in replay. That's a big jab step forward from a running quarterback to to make the defense believe that he's running a quarterback draw. That's because that wasn't it. That's what it, not what he was doing. Yeah. I believe. I, I hope I'm not misspeaking here. There have been so many really good rules analysts when the, when the whole trend started. You started out with Mike Pereira who I've heard it has a back problem, so he hasn't been on lately. 
on Fox. And then you got Gene Steratore, who's terrific on CBS. And Dean Blandino has been filling in at Fox, and he's really good. Those guys see things clearly. They don't misinterpret rulings. They don't go half-cocked on, on certain theories. They just call what they see and say, this is what I see. And usually they're right. And even when they're not, even when they're not right about what happens, I think they're, they're usually right instead of the official who does whatever he does. But instead, the BTN, I believe it was Bill LeMagne. If it wasn't, it was one of their other guys. It doesn't matter. Whoever it was, I'm not saying it was LeMagne, but they have a, the BTN goes low rent on this stuff. And they, they don't have a particularly good guy. And I don't think he was ever asked to to comment, was he? <laughs> no. He just pushed his button and yeah. started saying, you know, you know, that could be uh, that could that could be interpreted as a fake kneel down. There's two yeah. thirty left. Who does a fake? Who does a kneel down with two thirty to go? Have we gotten that far into Gen Z where we don't want to trigger the opposite? Oh, no, we could be <laughs> it could be it could be, totally be interpreted as if it was running up the score. We don't want that. A, it had to be a fake draw. That's what Purdue Prabula always does. B, he's a backup quarterback running that pass with Trey Potts, a third string running back. What You know, I put my backups out there. I'm not going to make them quit playing the game. We're going to play football. And that's been consistent with Franklin, too. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I think uh, he was accused by West Virginia people of running up the score or whatever. I think he takes a lot of pride in having his twos do the job against your ones. Your twos and threes should be given a chance to do the job. Also, you're showing, you know, we're we're kind of being uh, contradictory to what I already said, but you are showing in that case something that Prabula can do other than what he usually does, which you haven't shown before to Ohio State or Michigan or Maryland or whoever, because he always runs that draw. He's never thrown out of it. Now you're showing that on film. That's useful. And that's C. D. I'm sorry, but scores matter these days. In the age of the college football playoff, do you think the, the committee members, God bless the committee members, but I mean, we've had some committee members who you, you kind of scratch your head and gone, you know, should these people really be on the committee? They, I, I'm sure they try to watch all the games, but in the end, they're looking at scores. They're looking at scores on screens. Scores matter. Scores do matter, and if you score again and make it th- forty-one instead of thirty-four, thirteen, that that looks better. It does. Penn State has a whole tradition back during during Paterno when they were good of not ro- running up the score to a fault. There was a game in nineteen ninety-four that everyone remembers. I was down on the sideline. It's thirty-five, fourteen. They've basically just handled a, a so-so Indiana team. And that's in the middle of the 94 season where uh, Colorado and Nebraska and Penn State were all up top. Michigan lost on the last play to Cordell Stewart and Michael Westbrook in Colorado. And it really threw everything into a tizzy because later all those votes from Colorado and Nebraska went to Nebraska and they were first place votes for Colorado. At the same time, Penn State was with their twos and threes basically trying to do nothing against Indiana. Indiana threw a couple late touchdowns. The score is 35-29 at the end. It looks like a close game if you didn't watch it. And 
frankly, who in hell would watch Penn State <laughs> at Memorial Stadium and, and, and the drowsy atmosphere? It, it, it cost them. I think it really did. Perception matters, especially uneducated perception. And I'm just saying the committee, not all of them are probably educated in game flow. They're not all that. At the end, I can tell you from being on the ends, I did the NCA uh, bracket seminar for the basketball tournament. And I found out what, how, it, how it is trying to parse the last few teams. We were there for a day and a half in Indianapolis being taught by Greg Shaheen um, exactly how the process works. And I'm telling you, when you get down to the last, in the tournament, it's the last eight or ten teams. And this will be the last three or four, I suppose, in the tournament. And it's going to be more next year when there's 12 instead of four. But you're parsing scores against like opponents. You're looking for any possible difference to dif- differentiate one team from another. Scores matter. They do. So, you know, if you got a chance to score points with your twos and threes, you do it. I got no problem with it at all. I just want to make this point, and then we'll move on to the last thing. We were going to talk about the Big Ten. I just want to ask you about Maryland, Ohio State specifically. That's it. If there are five good officials in America, how can you expect more rules interpreters, more quality rules interpreters than that? You know, there's only so many, you know, people who are good at, at calling what they see. I think it's I think it's not fair to expect there to be very I've been, many. I've been one, this is this. I mean, the, the Big Ten. Remember when? <laughs> who was that? De Niro? He goes, this is this. This ain't something else. This is this. Is this. The Big Ten is always going to hire their own. And usually that's fine. There have been a lot of smart guys at the Big Ten. They usually had, used to have Dave Perry as their football officiating um, executive. Uh, Rich Falk was very good for their basketball. They've had good heads of officiating, although they haven't often had great officials. It's been catch as catch can. You remember Dave Whitfett, right? Yep. Dave Whitfett? Yep. How <laughs> could been you forget? a dead ball foul. <laughs> I mean, they've had some not so great officials, but they're always going to use their own in that, in that capability. And that's the bad it's not the way to go. Not, not a good thing. Last, last thing, um, Maryland, Ohio state, Maryland goes on the road. They, we, we've seen bursts from Maryland before, and we've seen undisciplined play from Maryland and inconsistency from them and games that they should win that they don't, you know, is this them breaking free of those chains, so to speak? Because I'll tell you what, I know they're on the road. I know they're going to the horseshoe. But the spread right now is 19 and a half for that game. I love that for Maryland. I don't know about straight up, but I love that point spread for Maryland. Here's the thing about them on the road. They've never been very good on the road. They've had moments, even against Ohio State at home, which they are now they're now calling Bird Stadium or whatever they call it now, the shell. Have you heard that? Oh, it's the God. shell. <laughs> it's like it's like coming up with with your own nickname. Like, <laughs> are you going to have your own nickname? I, I'm not Dustin anymore. I want you to call me D Money. All right. <laughs> That's lame. That's lame, Dave. <laughs> Hashtag yeah. D Money. <laughs> um, so 
I wouldn't do that. I mean, the last time they were in there, they lost 66 to 17, and that was with Talia Tungabaloa, okay? He's a better quarterback. I don't know if he's really a smarter quarterback. He is volatile, and they are volatile. I will say this about him. Last year at the Shell, they, they only lost, uh, I think it was uh, 43-31 to Ohio State, 43-30 to Ohio State. And that was a game late. It was 33-30 with, I think, eight, seven, eight minutes to go. They never really got a chance to get the ball back and do anything with it because Ohio State took it and drove six minutes and, and scored. But they have a better defense than they have had under Brian Williams, their coordinator. Um, he has recruited some speed and some guys who pop people. Um, I don't know that they're any more disciplined than they've ever been. They do knuckleheaded things, but they have weaponry on offense, as they often do, as they always do. Roman Hamby's a very good back. They've got that Littleton kid who is a giant bread truck who's a problem. Uh, they can attack you a lot of different ways with all their wideouts. They've got three or four or five different guys who, who Tungavaloa can throw to. Prather, we, also, we already mentioned, uh, Jashawn Jones, Jayshon Jones, who my, my nephew threw it to. I mean, he's been there forever. Uh, Corey Deitches, they've, they've got a lot of good weaponry. And they, they got a kid, a tie, um, who was the kid? He caught two touchdown passes, and he was a tight end. He caught a couple of touchdown passes. I can't remember his last name. Last week, I mean, they just come out of the woodwork with guys. That's not their problem. They have to protect Tungavaloa. And they have to defend the run because, oh, you know, we talk about Penn State not really being able to get tough yards uh, running the ball. Ohio State hasn't been great at it either. I think they're vulnerable uh, against Notre Dame. They couldn't get anything going until Henderson busted that 62-yarder or whatever it was. That was half their running, their rushing yards in that game. Also, Notre Dame started to gash them a little bit. Uh, with their own running game late late in the game, and I think they were lucky to come out of that with a win. Kyle McCord didn't look very good until the very end, and then he made a couple of terrific throws um, on that last drive. Uh, they're they're vulnerable. I'm just not. I, I, I wouldn't touch that bet. I wouldn't <laughs> even with the 19 because you could be in the game and then they could lose by 25. Very if you if you tell me not to touch it, I probably won't touch it. I mean, I'll bet it anyway. But uh, <laughs> if you tell me Ohio State's a slam dunk, I am betting the house on Maryland. I will. I will yeah, absolutely say I agree that. With that. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree we'll with see. That. I mean, it, I, I don't think they're a slam dunk. If anything, it's going to be. I think you should assess the threat level of Maryland throughout the year because it's going to fluctuate big time. They're gonna. They're 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 not going to be this five and zero version of themselves all season long. Uh, I think there's going to be some bumps in the road, and there just always seems to be. We talk about Maryland like this a lot, uh, and then there are moments where they become themselves again. Yeah, there, there's one other sneaky good game I want to I want to mention, and we're we're kind of monitoring these guys is Rutgers at Wisconsin, which will be a totally different kind of game. It's going to be a train wreck because Rutgers has played better defense. Their quarterback Gavin Wimsat is starting to come along. And Kyle Menongai, their little running back, although Michigan totally shut him down, I think he can run the ball against a team like Wisconsin. So that is going to be a meat and potatoes game and should be interesting with Wisconsin. I believe they're coming off a bye. Yes, they are. So that should be interesting. 
Yeah, uh, that's another one to assess the threat level there with Rutgers. Uh, And it's if Rutgers has a quarterback, we haven't seen Rutgers have a quarterback since when, Dave? Well, I'm not sure Wimsat is the answer, but I think they've done a really nice job with him limiting his mistakes. He certainly is a threat running the ball. Manangai is a load, that little guy. I mean, he is terrific. And they've got enough guys to score some points. Their defense is better. They don't do anything really well, but they do everything better. Shiano's starting to whip that into shape a little bit. to start to look like the uh, the, the Mike Teal <laughs> 2006 team with, with Ray Rice and, and those guys. That the, the running game and defense, and they're never going to – they're never going to win the division. Well, there won't be any division next year. They're never going to go a long way with that, but they can give a team like Wisconsin trouble. They can. Well, there you go. That's that's Deb Jones talking about the uh, the Big Ten here, Penn State. Uh, got the bye. UMass coming up next weekend. Follow along, PennLive.com slash Penn State football for everything that we're doing there. And the Blue White Breakdown can be found just about anywhere you can find podcasts. So there you go. For Dave Jones, I'm Dustin Hockesmith. Saying see you next time here on the Blue White Breakdown. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. <laughs>